if you were in prison awaiting your execution, would you write about contentment? Well, I, I must confess, I don't think I would. That's certainly not the first thing that crosses my mind when I'm sitting in prison awaiting execution. Not that that's ever happened to me. But this is what Paul does here in Philippians chapter 4. This is known as one of those prison epistles. And Paul writes about contentment as he's in prison. Contentment is something that's highly prized by many people, but it's one of those things that's very elusive, isn't it? Very elusive. It's, it's, it's hard to find. It's, it's, it's hard to make it who you are. It's hard to find. So I want to help you to find contentment coming from the book of Philippians here today. How, how do you find contentment? How can you find contentment? Well, you know, I often give the negative before I often give the positive. So let's, let's think about this negatively, first of all, okay? How not to find contentment. You're not going to find contentment in money. If you think you're going to find contentment in money, you're just going to keep pursuing it. You'll keep going after it. And you're never, you're never going to attain contentment. It's a bit, it's a bit like, dangling the carrot out in front of the horse or the donkey or whatever whatever's pulling your cart right you ever seen them do that drivers they'll dangle a carrot and and the animal keeps going after it never gets the carrot well maybe when they finally get to the destination but you you recognize you have three enemies right i hope you do every one of us as christians has three enemies we have the world this world system your own indwelling sin and Satan. And those three enemies are constantly coming after you, dangling that carrot out in front of you, so to speak, saying, hey, look, look at, look at money. Money will make you happy. It's going to give you joy and contentment and everything else you want. But you won't find it. Many of the richest people in the world have committed suicide because they were never happy. Possessions are, will not, you're not going to find contentment in possessions. You know, the, the most contented people I've seen in the world are the folks in the Solomon Islands. They're the most contented people in the world. They, they basically have nothing except the clothes on their back and some little hut that they've made in the bush somewhere. Maybe a vegetable garden. Family, maybe. That's about it. And they usually have a church which to them is everything. Possessions will, you're never going to find contentment in possessions. You'll never find contentment in power. Never going to find contentment in fame. A lot of people who have fame don't like it, do they? Because the obnoxious paparazzi follows you everywhere, taking photos you don't want, and then you end up on the front cover of something. And that's usually not very flattering, is it? You're not going to find contentment in relationships. Your friends, your family, your workmates, they're always going to continually disappoint you. They're going to say something you don't like. They're going to do something you don't like. They are going to let you down. After all, they're human, just like you. And they're going to sin. So you're never going to find contentment in relationships. You're not going to find contentment in a job. So please don't be one of those people who just kind of keeps floating around, you know, job to job, thinking, oh, well, this I'm not happy in this job, so I'll go find another job, and that one's going to make me content. No, it won't. 
Never will. You're not going to find contentment in freedom from difficulties. You, know, you, might, you might think, hey, you know, what, wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have any aches and pains? If I didn't have any headaches? You know, if I didn't have, oh, that back pain. Oh, that's not nice. Or the, oh, my knees, my joints. Whatever. Whatever you have. Whatever that difficulty might be. Freedom from that is not going to bring you contentment. Here in Philippians chapter 4, it actually gives us the secret of contentment. It's it's not really a secret. uh, We we often like to talk that way, though, don't we? You know, there's all these sort of things that seem to be very elusive, and we want to talk about them as if they're they're secret. You know, we, we sell books in bookstores, you know, the secret for this and that, right? 101 ways to whatever. But God tells us the so-called secret to contentment here in Philippians 4, verses 10 through 19. You say, well, what is contentment before we read this passage? What is contentment? Well, I like uh, what Jeremy Burroughs wrote in his book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you can ever find that book, it's a good little book. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Very convicting. Anyway, here's how Jeremy Burroughs talks about contentment. He says, quote, Christian, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wives and fatherly disposal in every condition. Notice that last three words, in every condition. So it's, it's, it's the person who who can be gracious, who, who is quiet inwardly, can sub- submit and even delight in being in a place like a prison. How can you delight by being in prison, awaiting your execution, chained to some Roman soldier? How can you possibly delight in that? Well, we'll talk about that. We'll see what this man who is sitting in prison, what he has to say about that. What has he learned? about contentment. And, by the way, before concluding this letter to the Philippian congregation, he's, he's writing to a literal local church here, Paul wanted to express his, grief, his, his deep gratitude to them. You say, why? Why is he deeply uh, in, in gratitude to them? They had sent him a gift, a very gracious gift. In, in verses 10 through 19, are Paul's thank you note to them for that gift. It's a thank you note to them for that gift. Now I want you to remember at this time, here's a man, the Apostle Paul, he's, he's sitting in prison. He's apparently in Rome. He's confined in this small little room. He's guarded around the clock by Roman soldiers who probably don't want to be there either. <laughs> but they're just doing their job. And imagine being chained to Paul if you're unsaved. Imagine what that's like. Oh, talk about a captive audience, right? I mean, it's like, oh, great. Oh, let's see, who do you get to guard today? I can imagine the Roman soldiers talking. Who do you get to guard today? Oh, hey, I get to go see Paul. You, oh, man, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> feel sorry for you, buddy. <laughs> You know Paul's going to witness to the guy, and he's, he can't get away. He's chained to him. 
poor Paul, he can't, he can't minister any longer. He can't, he can't be out there in the churches, you know, establishing more churches. He can't minister to the churches he's already established. Doesn't, he no longer has that freedom. He's unable to work. He can't support himself, and he's dependent upon other people. He's in a very dependent condition at the moment. And so we see in this passage here a man who is content. He's learned that so-called secret of contentment. But how did he get to this point? It, it doesn't come natural to us. In fact, Paul, Paul even uses the word learned in the passage. I have learned to be content. It's not something you're born with. God, by His grace, works this attitude in us. And so from this passage, I want, to see, I want you to see and learn five principles of contentment. Five principles of contentment. So let's let's start reading in Philippians 4 verse 10. And then by the time we're done today, I do have a little bit of an application and encouragement to you in regards to the Solomon Islands. Look at verse 10. You see God's provision here. Paul says in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking in being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's stop there for a moment. First of all, we see here, the first lesson to be learned here is a contented person is confident in God's providence. A contented person is confident in God's providence. You say, well, what is providence? Well, here's a definition I like. I like this definition. It's God's care for the creation which involves his preservation of it and guiding it to its intended ends. Do you believe that? you believe God preserves all of his creation, including all the intimate details of your life, and is guiding them to their intended ends? Do you actually believe that? Oh, that, that will be challenged when some difficulty comes into your life, I can assure you. And you, you'll start doing what Job did, and you start asking why. Something challenging, some difficult circumstance, or physical ailment or something. You'll, you'll most likely start asking why. Not wrong to ask why. The better question is the, is the one that Job found out in chapters 38, 39, and 40, which is who. Job needed to know who. He needed to know God. So may I remind you that make it a lifelong striving and struggle in your life to know God better. When, when those difficult times do come, then, then you've, got, you've got a really sturdy backbone to, to deal with whatever comes your way. God had done that in Paul's life. Paul believed in God's providence. He believed that God was preserving everything and and, and guiding to its intended end, including being in prison and even death. Paul firmly believed that. 
Now, we need some background information here to understand why Paul is, is even thinking of God's providence. So let me give you some background, background information. About ten years had passed since Paul had established this church at Philippi. The Philippians, if you, if you read the whole book, you'll find out this isn't the first gift that they gave him. Uh, generally speaking, they had done whatever they could to help support Paul in his ministry as he traveled around. And as the years passed, they had been concerned about Paul. But notice verse 10 says, in in this situation here, they had no opportunity. Now, we're not exactly sure what that's referring to, if it's it's the opportunity to help him out while he's in prison in Rome or, or what. But Paul clearly says they had no opportunity to provide support for him. And the reason for that particular lack is, is not actually written in Scripture here, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not even going to try to guess. You, you can maybe think of many reasons. But recently, an opportunity arose when this man named Epaphroditus arrived in Rome, and he arrives with this gift. And he brings it to Paul. It was a very generous gift. These, these people were not rich. They were giving out of their poverty, Scripture says. But nevertheless, Epaphroditus brings this very generous gift from the Philippians, and we see Paul rejoicing in the Lord for this generous gift. In verse 10, he, he, and he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. He's very thankful for this. So Paul's gracious attitude reflects his patient confidence in God's sovereign providence. He He recognizes that God led them to sacrificially give. God was gracious in allowing Epaphroditus to come all this way, not get robbed. (laughs) That was God's providence. For Epaphroditus to actually find Paul was also God's providence. There was many things God was working out here. He was guiding all this way. Paul was certain, though, that God would meet his needs. He, I, don't, I don't think he ever doubted that. There was no panic. You never see Paul panicking. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's horrible things going around him all the time. and He's, he's never in a panic. He's, he's in control. There's no attempt to manipulate people. No, no taking matters into his own hands like we often do. <laughs> he was content because he knew that the times, the seasons, and opportunities of life are controlled by a sovereign God, a God who reigns supreme over all of His creation. That includes the animals, the weather, and people. He was trusting in the sovereign God who is working all things after the counsel of His will, Scripture says. So, my friends, you must realize that a confident trust in God's providence is foundational to contentment. You're never going to find contentment if, if, if your trust is misplaced in the wrong object. If your trust is, is continually going after money, possessions, people, jobs, your hobbies, yourself, anything else, you're going to continually be disappointed. That's foundational. Number two, a contented person is satisfied with little. A contented person is satisfied with little. Look at verse 11. Paul says in verse, in, in, in verse 11, Not that I am speaking in, of being in need, 
For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, lest the Philippians misunderstand his statement that he makes in verse 10, Paul quickly adds a disclaimer here in verse 11. Notice that disclaimer. He did not mean to imply that he spoke from need. In fact, he said he had learned to be content in any situation, including even being in prison. It did not matter that he was a prisoner, living in a small room, chained to a Roman soldier, subsisting on uh, a sparse diet, whatever that was, bread and water, I don't know. But he certainly wasn't at a five-star hotel eating seven-course dinners, that's for sure. (laughs) But none of that affected Paul's contentment. He says that he's content. Why? Because, Because he had a lot? No. The opposite, right? He's not content because he had a lot. He's, he actually has a little, but nevertheless, he's still content. And he's satisfied with what little he had. How? How is it possible for anybody to be satisfied with little? Well, the Bible says Paul was satisfied in God. If you have your object as God, it doesn't matter about anything else. Everything else pales in comparison to God. And so true contentment only comes from God. Only someone who is, who is looking at God, trusting in God, relying on God, loving God, receiving God's love in return can be content. Only that person can be content. So a contented person is satisfied with little, but number three... A contented person is independent from circumstances. You're you're totally independent from circumstances. Circumstances, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, you're not experiencing happiness and joy when everything is good. All right? Only in those circumstances, you know, some people are, are content. You know, you know, if the sun, you know, for example, if the sun is shining, you know, they're, you know, they've got a smile on their face. But man, the, the days when it's cold and rainy, they're grumpy. You know, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? You know, when there's money in the bank, they're happy. But, uh, you know, when, when <clears throat> you know, you run your FPOS card through the scanner and it says not accepted, they, you know, they're not happy, right? You know what I'm talking about? Those kind of people. And sometimes we're that way as well. Not everything's going our way. We get, we get a bit grumpy. We're discontent. But Paul says a a contented person is independent of circumstances. That's the idea in verse 12. Because he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in every and every circumstance. In, notice that, in any and every circumstance. In other words, he's independent of his circumstances. The circumstances are not driving his contentment. That's, his contentment's not based on circumstances. So, you know, if I have a lot, then great. You know, if I have nothing, great. I still have God. And that's all that mattered to Paul. Paul's sufficiency came from his union with the sufficient Christ. He was relying on Christ. He was connected to the vine who was Christ. I want you to listen to what Paul says here in, in Galatians chapter 2. Listen to this. 
Galatians 2, here's what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul's continually talking about Christ. You notice that? Read his letters. Notice how often he talks about Christ. How often is he preaching about Christ? Where does his hope lie? Who does he want to know? (laughs) Well, a clear illustration of this truth in Paul's life comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Would you keep your finger here, but, but please turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A very clear illustration here for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I, I want you to... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, chapter 11, sorry. Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. We'll get to chapter 12 in a moment. Before we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 11, though, I want, I want I don't know if you noticed this, but twice... In Philippians 4, verse 12, he says, I know how. I know how. He says that twice, and what is it revealing? It's revealing that Paul had learned by experience and spiritual maturity to live above his circumstances and and, and not let the circumstances affect his contentment. It's a bit like flying in an airplane. You ever flown in an airplane or jet? It was amazing. When, when I, uh, two weeks ago when I flew to the Solomon Islands, I left the Hamilton Airport at, I don't know, 7 o'clock in the morning or whatever it was. It wasn't a real nice morning on the ground. It was amazing, though. As the plane got up, went through the clouds, and I'm thinking, man, I hope, I'm, I hope it's not like this the whole way. But then, then all of a sudden, we like, boom, through the clouds, and I'm like, wow. Sun was coming up. Sun shining, beautiful, no rain up there above the clouds. Beautiful day. And I was thinking, um, wow, I wonder how often I'm this way. <laughs> I wonder how often I'm this way. I wonder how often you're this way. You know, we, we, we kind of get under the weather sometimes. And, uh, you know, people jokingly say, it'd be nice if the sun shone today. You know, when people get grumpy and they start complaining about the weather, I, I, I jokingly like to tell them, you know, the sun is shining. You, you do know that, right? Above the clouds is beautiful up there. It really is. Don't, don't forget that. <laughs> but, but sometimes we get under the weather. We, we, we don't rise above whatever is affecting us. We're not like a jet. <laughs> but we should be. And this is a hard lesson to learn, really. Not letting things affect us. Oh, all sorts of things affect us, don't they? Food affects us. Weather affects us. People affect us. Temperature affects us. How hard something is. How soft something is. Whether something is itchy or not itchy. You know, the list goes on and on, right? There's all sorts of things affect us. We're easily affected by things and people. And so it's a hard lesson to learn to not be affected by those things. But someone who's truly contentment is not going to be affected by situations and circumstances and people. And, and it really is clear from, from verse 12 there in Philippians 4 that Paul had experienced poverty. 
He's not one of those you know, ivory tower theologians who's never actually experienced poverty. You know, it's, it's one thing for somebody who's, you ever had, you know, someone who's rich to say to someone who's poor, you know, you know, you know just deal with it, buddy. You know, be content in whatever situation you're in, right? And it, it's one thing for a rich person to tell a poor person that, but for another person who's in poverty to tell another person in poverty, be content. Whatever situation you're in, it's a little different, right? Paul's not an ivory tower theologian. He's one who actually has experienced poverty. He had lived and ministered in the trenches, so to speak. His life was not a good testimonial, by the way, for the prosperity gospel, I can assure you. <laughs> you know, follow me as I follow Christ, and, you, and you'll probably be poor. Oh, and you'll probably be thrown in prison. You'll be beaten, and you'll be shipwrecked, and you're probably going to be cold at night and starved to death. No. So he, he's not preaching one of those prosperity, wealth, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity gospels, is he? No, he definitely didn't do that. Very popular today, though, isn't it? Follow Christ, you know. Accept Christ, and, you know, you're never going to have any more problems. But that's not true. <laughs> it's not biblical. Certainly not what Christ taught. Not what Paul taught. Not wasn't Paul's experience either. As we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, these are some of the things that Paul went through in his life. Look at this. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Ooh, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my, of my anxiety for all the churches. Huh. So that's, that's definitely not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, is it? So, you know, you know, get saved, follow Christ, and, <clears throat> and you're going to have all sorts of uh, interesting things happen to you. <laughs> That's one, one way of putting a spin on it, isn't it? Well, in all of Paul's sufferings, he had, he had learned to rise above those circumstances, like a jet going above the clouds. How did he do that, though? How did he do that? Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to... To be like that, no matter what comes your way, you know, you're, you're, you're just stable. You're a, you're a flat line, emotionally and experientially, right? How did he do that? Well, he kept his focus on heaven realities. Over and over again, Paul's, Paul talks about heaven realities. That was his focus. You, you forget the things that are behind and you strive for the mark, for the high prize that high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Even in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, 
for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So what we just read, I, I know this is amazing. It's no wonder that some people called him a madman, as he even called himself. Paul, you're a madman. Why? Because he, he calls this light affliction. It's momentary light affliction, as he says in 2 Corinthians 4. And, and where's his focus? On the things that are going on around him? Is his focus on all of his scars and you know how bad he feels and where he is and what's happening? No, it, it's the eternal weight of glory that's beyond all comparison. That's his focus. That's where our focus needs to be. The only way you're going to rise above the circumstances you deal with in your life is to, is to be focused on heaven realities, heavenly realities. Set your affection on things above and not on the earth. So that verse is helpful, I think, as we think about contentment. Number four. Number four, a contented person is strengthened by God's power. You're strengthened by God's power. Uh, we read earlier, Philippians 4.13. What did Paul say? You know that verse, hopefully. I can do what? All things through, through you, through your own strength? Is that how you can do it? No, that's not what it says. It says, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That's how you can do all things. Does that mean even sitting in prison, awaiting execution? Yeah. That's the only way you're going to make it through it. The only way you'll make it through it. So a contented person strengthened by God's power. So Paul's sufficiency came from his union with the sufficient Christ. Sorry, I read this earlier. Um, I'm getting lost in my notes. But Galatians 2, remember Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. So who is living then? Paul says, it's Christ lives in me. He says, I've been crucified. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's the only way that you'll find contentment. So again, the clear illustration is here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Look at verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming deceited conceited three times i pleaded with the lord about this that it should leave me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of christ may rest upon me for the sake of christ then i am content with weaknesses insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when I am weak, then I am strong. A good, clear illustration of this truth. Contentment comes as a result of God's power. So my friends, God's power, we need to realize here, is more than sufficient to strengthen us. It's more than sufficient to 
sustain you in anything you go through. Whatever that is, it's more than sufficient. Therefore, contentment belongs to those who confidently trust in God's power then. You need to rely upon that power. Number five. The last one we'll look at. You can turn back to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 again. But the last one we see here is a contented person is preoccupied with the well-being of others. Contented persons preoccupied with the well-being of others. Look at Philippians 4 verse 14. We see someone who is not just thinking of himself, he's thinking of others. Verse 14 says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me make a few comments on these verses. So I hope, hopefully one of the things you can see here is someone who's who he's preoccupied with the well-being of others. And may I remind you, he's in prison. He's not in good circumstances here. He's in bad circumstances, but nevertheless, his, his thoughts, his prayers, his concern is for other people. And so if you live only for yourself, guess what? You're never going to be content. If you focus on you all the time, you're going to be miserable. So if you wonder why you have a problem with happiness and joy and contentment, I guarantee part of your problem is you're too self-focused, you're too selfish, you're, you're worshiping yourself. That's a lot of your problem. You need to repent of that sin. Get your eyes off yourself and love other people. So if you live only for yourself, you're, you're never going to be content. And you say, why? Why is that so? Well, for that kind of a person, whoever that person is, contentment can come only when their circumstances are exactly as they want them to be. Does that ever happen? For anybody in this universe... Are their circumstances always the way they want them to be? Always? Have you ever met someone like that? No. It doesn't exist. It never happens. <laughs> right? Nobody has exactly the food they want, the exact weather they want, the exact clothes they want, the exact possessions they have, exact everything. It just never happens. And so they're always striving for something they're never going to attain to. And as a result, they're not happy, they're disgruntled and discontent. So only those who unselfishly put others' well-being above their own are going to find contentment. You get your eyes off yourself and you start serving other people, 
I guarantee it's going to help you be content. You're going to realize, hey, you know, you know this, this thing that I thought was a, a major problem in my life, you're going to come to realize there are people worse than you. They have more problems than you, bigger problems than you, more pain than you, more financial debt than you. You may not like your job, but you start meeting somebody who doesn't have a job and wants one, then you're going to be thankful for your job, hopefully. All right, that's just one little example. Now, notice here in Philippians 4, verse 14, it starts with the word, at least in my English Standard Version here, it starts with the word yet. Some Bible translations use the word nevertheless. Okay? When you see words like yet, nevertheless, therefore, wherefore, these kind of words, you need to, you need to take notice of those things. They're markers. They're like road signs that are, that are telling you, hey, pay attention. You know, something's about ready to change here. It's a bit like those, those road signs that tell you, you know, slow down, there's a curve ahead, or, you know, those kind of signs. That, that's what this word is doing, the word yet, or nevertheless. It's introducing an important transition in Paul's thought. See, what he had written in verses 10 through 13 could have easily sent the wrong message to the Philippians. If the letter had ended at verse 13, the Philippians may have concluded that Paul neither needed nor appreciated their very sacrificial gift to him. They may have been thinking, oh, that was a waste. He didn't need it, when in reality he did. So to make certain that the Philippians did not misunderstand him, we have verse 14 in our Bible. So Paul reassured them that they had done well to share with him. You did a good thing, my brothers and sisters. That's essentially what he's telling them. And, and, and he thanks them for this gift. He's rejoicing in this wonderful sacrificial gift. In fact, he uses some very interesting language in verse 18. There's three statements in verse 18 that are summarizing Paul's joy and his gratitude for these people and what they're, they're doing for him. If you look at verse 18, Paul says, first of all, I have received full payment. I have received full payment. This statement is, is some have described it as kind of like Paul's receipt to the Philippians for their gift. You ever given a gift or, or you, you pay for something and you get a receipt back? Ever happened to you? Well, it happens to us all the time, right? You, you pay for something at the shop, you often get a receipt back or you, you make some sort of a donation to a charity or, or whatever, you often get a receipt back. That's a normal thing. That's kind of like what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, I've, I've received full payment. This is Paul's receipt to the Philippians. But he doesn't stop there in verse 18, because he goes on and he says, not only have I received full payment, he says, and more, and more. The idea is here, he's, he's overflowing. He, he's, he's up to excess. He has more than enough. It's like having a bucket, right? It's having a bucket, and you pour water in the bucket. You keep pouring the water in the bucket, and eventually what's going to happen? As long as there's no holes or cracks or whatever in the bucket, right, and you can stay above the, the rate of evaporation, Eventually, what's going to happen is the bucket's going to fill up and it's going to overflow. Essentially, that's kind of the idea that Paul's saying here. I am, 
I'm overflowing. I'm not only full, I'm to the excess. You can't get any more in me. <laughs> and, and there's a third statement he uses in verse 18. He says, I am well supplied. This phrase speaks of being filled up completely. Being filled up completely. It's a bit like the person who's... You ever gone to someone's house and people feel like, you know, they, they treat you like you're starving to death, right? You know, oh, you poor boy, you're, let me, I'm going to give you food. I'm going to keep giving you food. Oh, here, have some more food. Oh, oh, you need some more food. And they keep get, and you feel like you have to eat it, right? You ever felt that way? And so you keep eating and you're, you're full and like, oh, man, I can't eat anymore. Okay, let's undo our belt a little bit. Maybe I make some room here. Oh, man, I'm so full. And, oh, you poor boy, have some more. And they keep putting food on your plate. Paul's kind of feeling that way. You know, he's like, like we do in the States at Thanksgiving a lot of times. You know, please bring the wheelbarrow to get me out the door. You, you eat so much, you're like, oh, I had 15 pies today. Oh, and one turkey and stuffing and, and a whole pile of mashed potatoes. And the list goes on and on. Oh, I can't eat anymore. It's even in my toes. That's the way Paul's feeling. He's well supplied. He's filled up completely. And you say, what's the point? What? He's not talking about food here. But I hope you get the point. That when, when we take all these phrases here in verse 18 and we, we kind of put them together, they're showing that Paul's overwhelmed by the generosity of the Philippians. He's just totally overwhelmed. That's the point I want you to get from that. Another interesting thing I've noticed here in verse 18 is we have some Old Testament kind of language going on here in verse 18. And Paul describes this particular gift that comes to him at this very appropriate moment in his life in three ways. There's three descriptions here in verse 18. Number one, he, he calls this gift a fragrant offering. Fragrant offering. That, that's Old Testament sacrificial language. Okay, if you, can, if you can go back to your Old Testament, the book of Exodus... Remember the, the Old Testament, um, the, the Israelites there, God told them what to do in their worship in the tabernacle. One of those, those uh, pieces of furniture there in the Old Testament tabernacle as well as the temple was they had the altar of incense. You remember where that was located? It was right in front of the veil to the, to the Holy of Holies. That very special place that only one man could enter one time a year. The altar of incense sat right before that veil, and the veil represented Christ. Jesus even called himself a veil. And remember, the veil ripped in two as Christ died. So that, that veil of separation ended when Christ atoned for sin. And so now we're all believers and priests before God. But that, that altar of incense was, was part of their worship. And, and often in Scripture you see that incense is representing the prayers of the saints before God. And God often says it was, it was something that was sweet-smelling to his nose. He doesn't have a nose, but often Scripture uses human language to help us to understand God and what's going on. And so it was a fragrant offering, beautiful smelling, whatever it was. Paul says before God this, this gift God notices, and he calls it a fragrant offering. But notice, number two, he calls it an acceptable sacrifice. It's an acceptable 
sacrifice. God is pleased. Whenever he accepts something, that, that means he's pleased with it. If he rejects it, then of course he's not pleased with it, right? But we see this, this again, this Old Testament language here in verse, verse 18. But he doesn't even end there. There's a, there's a third thing he says. He, he says that the sacrifice is pleasing to God. Kind of <laughs> helping us to understand what the others are saying. And that's how Paul described this gift. He's using this sacrificial language from the Old Testament. And that's, that is because he saw the gift as a sacrificial act of worship to God. And that's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. One of the things we can learn from this is, is that gifts, monetary gifts, are pleasing to God when they're given with the right heart, the right purposes, the right motives. And I guess one of the things I want to encourage you with, because the, the ministry we have in, in the Solomon Islands cannot happen without your gifts. Okay? That ministry happens because of your gifts. Because uh, apparently you believe this is something that, you, that God wants us to be doing. I believe God providentially dropped this, 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 this ministry in our laps, and uh, you've, you've obviously responded, and I praise God for your response. So I, one of the things I want to do is encourage you. You can see, even from Scripture itself, that, that gifts, when given to God, is, is something God describes as, hey, they're a fragrant offering. They're an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. God notices and he approves. But not only that, he rewards. He rewards. Some of the lessons we can learn from, from this is, like in verse 17, for example, we see that God gives spiritual blessings in heaven for your generosity. God notices and he rewards. He sees, he rewards. Because he, he says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift. This is Paul speaking, of course. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, this credit's in heaven. I don't know if there's a literal bank of heaven or not, but if, if, if that imagery helps you to, to think of, of, of your credit in heaven, your eternal rewards being there, then, then go for it. But we see here God giving spiritual blessings in heaven for our generosity that we do here on earth. You may never get to meet the people whom you have indirectly ministered to. But I can assure you, they are very grateful. They love the Word of God. And, and uh, Lord willing, next week I'll, I'll share a testimony from one of the, from one of the pastors who, who has thanked you. But my friends, you're going to receive reward in heaven for every, every little piece of money that you have given to the Solomon Islands. Number two, we see also in verse 19, because because what, what we end up doing uh, sometimes is we think, well, you know, you could be like the Philippians. I don't know, maybe some of them were tempted to think, hey, I give to Paul out of my poverty when I need money. How, how am I going to put food on my table to feed my children or grandchildren or whatever? If I give this, then then I have nothing left for me. Some of them are probably thinking that way. 
And so Paul encouraged them with this wonderful truth in verse 19 that God supplies all our physical needs in this life. In other words, you, you can never outgive God. You cannot outgive God. Because look what verse 19 says. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My friends, do you, do you have any idea of the glory of heaven? The glory that God has? Do you have any idea of His riches? Well, there's something for you to meditate on. Okay, You just meditate on that one for a while. Because God says He's going to supply your every need according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So God's going to supply your every physical need. Now, God doesn't say He's going to supply all your wants, okay? Don't, don't, don't take this and run too far with it. Okay, beware. There is, there is that danger. We, we love to say, you know, hey, you know... Uh, you know, I really need a Rolls Royce. Really? I need a Ferrari. No, you don't. <laughs> we, we like to think, okay, you know, you might think you need a vehicle to get around. Well, that, that, even that's debatable. Or you might think you need, you say, okay, well, if you somehow convince yourself you need something, then we, we, we tend to ramp that up sometimes and say, well, you know, I need, I need one that's twice as expensive as that one. Really? Well, I'll leave that issue between you and God, okay? But sometimes we, we, we think our, our needs are really wants, okay? You need to be aware of that. So God's not going to give you everything you want, of course. But there is this, this beautiful general promise we see in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with new wine. Or, sorry, with wine. Now, I don't think any of us have big barns. I don't think any of us have, you know, vast acres or hectares of weeds or some other thing that we're storing up in a barn. I don't think any of us are that way. But just because the imagery there doesn't exactly match you, don't miss the point. Okay, don't miss the point, please. The point is this. All of us should be honoring the Lord with whatever God has given to us. It's all His. We're supposed to be wise stewards of whatever He's given to us. And then we're even to honor Him with the first fruits. First fruits was the, the first and the best, supposedly. When it came, came harvest time, people would, would bring those to God, to the tabernacle or the temple or whatever. They would bring them. That was God's. It was not theirs. That's what the first fruits was. And God says, generally speaking, when you honor me, I will honor you. That's the point. You honor me, God says, I will honor you. I will look after you. I will care for you. You're not going to go hungry. You're not going to go thirsty. You're going to have the clothes you need, the shelter you need. I will look after you. A third point I want to make here is the extent to which God supplies our needs is according to His riches. That's what verse 19 says. 
So the extent is according to God's riches, not your riches, not the government's riches, not the UN, not the World Bank, not any other kind of standard on this earth. It's according to His riches. In other words, God's giving is relative to His eternal wealth. And that's infinite. That's infinite. So my friends, learn this truth. It is impossible to outgive God. So when the Holy Spirit lays on you, your heart to give to some ministry or whatever that is, you can thank God that He's going to meet your needs. You might be thinking, now wait a minute, what the Holy Spirit has laid on my heart doesn't match up with my bank account. <laughs> okay, I'm not, I'm not saying, don't be foolish, okay? Right? You know, if you if you got ten dollars in your bank account, don't don't say, you know, don't write out a check for a million dollars to some ministry. That's not what I'm saying, okay? That's called foolishness. But you can't outgive God. God says, You have ten dollars, and he says, I want you to give ten dollars, then you should give the ten dollars and then and then just say, Oh well, here's what I say sometimes. Okay. Sometimes I'm wondering, okay, God, all right, if you really want me to do that, I'll do that, but what are you going to do? I know know you know my bank account. I know you know what's there. If I give this, then how am I going to meet those needs? And then I just sit back, and, and, and it's fun to see what God does when you obey God and see how, how is he going to meet your needs. That's fun. That is really fun. I mean, God does some amazing things in really strange ways. I mean, I've told you some of those those things God does. I mean, God blows money into my section. You know, God God puts money on the on the the path in front of me. I even found $190 one time. I mean, God does uh, food ends up on the doorstep. You know, the list goes on and on. God gives me free things that, you know, like well, you know, you win something. You just never you feel like you never win anything, and sometimes you win something. It's like, whoa. It's fun how God ends up meeting needs. I mean, we got free insulation, for example. And that, that helped tremendously through this winter, right? I was thinking, okay, how's God going to meet our needs? You know, wintertime's expensive. You're running your heat pump a lot. Well, you know what? Before winter came, God gave us free insulation. Okay, that's, You say, well, that's not a big deal. Well, to me it is, <laughs> okay, because God did that. And and it, it might be a little thing, but you know that saved I don't know maybe a couple hundred dollars or something throughout the winter time in heating bills. So I'm just saying those are just a few things, a few ways God has has worked in our life. You know, we just haven't been able to outgive God. God keeps meeting our needs. He keeps giving and giving out. Uh, you know, it's the extent is His riches in Christ. So the crucial lessons on contentment can be summarized in five words, okay? If you, in case you missed these, here, here's the five words, okay? Kind of taking those points and uh, I kind of summarize them for you. So the lessons on contentment can be summarized in these five words. Number one, faith. Number two, humility. Number three is submission. Four, dependence. And five, unselfishness. So you can take those five points and kind of boil them down to these five words. We have faith, humility, submission, dependence, and unselfishness. So my friends, if, if, if those things are in you and they're growing and 
the Holy Spirit is building these things and working these things in your life, you are going to be one who is not going to be affected by circumstances. You'll be one, whether you have all or nothing, you will be content. What a blessed state of of mind and heart and life to be in, isn't it? Nothing sways you around like all the people you work with and other people in your family, right? (laughs) Who are just, you know, they're all over the show, aren't they? What a great place to be. Total contentment. Total reliance upon God for whatever comes your way. No better place to be. Well, that isn't going to happen without faith, humility, submission, dependence, and unselfishness. So my prayer for you is that God would, through His Holy Spirit, work these things in us so that we can truly do all things through Christ who strengthens us.